everybody, welcome to Life on Life Only, and this is The Way of the Nervous Official, a tragic comedy about table tennis. So first of all, answer me this, listeners, where else would you find a tragic comedy about table tennis? This is something I wrote for my blog in about 2013, I think. It's pretty much all true. I've made a couple of embellishments, but uh, it was a real event witnessed by 50 or 60 people and great hilarity ensued, as you will hear. So a little bit of background. I started playing table tennis when I was a child because my father was playing in the local league. And about the age of 10, I started getting coaching from a wonderful gentleman from Wales called Ken Phillips. He's uh, quite a well-known coach now. Table tennis is a great game. Both me and my father get very annoyed by the fact that it's mostly referred to as ping pong, which of course makes it seem like a joke, makes it seem like, uh, I don't know, one rung above tiddlywinks. But in fact, if you watch table tennis, it's, uh, it's an incredible game at the highest level. And the thing about it that's quite interesting is that if you compare it to tennis, obviously um, a tennis court is far bigger. The tennis racket is much bigger than a table tennis bat. It's all a larger scale, which I think is the reason why it's much more glamorous. But in tennis, the amount of time between your shot and the opponent's shot is uh, a bit longer. So you've actually got time to think about what shot you're going to play. But really the magic of table tennis is that you don't have time. So essentially it's all really done on instinct. I'm talking about the highest level, not a beginner's level. So um, just to say really that I think it's a great game and it's very undervalued. So my father and I used to play table tennis in Maidenhead League. And what can we say? Well, there's a family joke we have, which is to remember some of the rather peculiar characters that inhabit the world of table tennis. And in fact, uh, one way that I crack my parents up when I see them is to say, um, just think at this moment, there's someone somewhere in England, a rather peculiar gentleman with strange ways thinking, hmm, I think I'll take up a racket sport. Shall I take up tennis? Shall I take up badminton? I think I'll take up table tennis. This is not the case everywhere, because my father plays in some of the leagues where he lives, and the people are relatively normal, so I don't know if it's a maidenhead thing. But anyway, the subject of our story today, Peter Goatley, and that is his real name. It's too good to make up, let's face it, especially in the context of this story. He was, yeah, uh, quite a strange guy. The background to this is that he wanted to become a professional table tennis umpire. And when I say professional, I, I don't know if it's a full-time job and it, it's a gig that would pay for your mortgage, so to speak. Perhaps it's like a part-time thing and you earn a little bit of money. Anyway, he was going for an umpire certificate. And this was the last day of what was called the Maidenhead Closed, as opposed to the Maidenhead Open. Very aptly named because table tennis, as you'll hear me say in the story, is it bit of a closed environment. They take themselves a bit seriously. A tournament I used to play in, played in for many years, very much enjoyed it. It was, it was in a school in Maidenhead. So anyway, uh, they'd have the finals and there'd be the spotlight on the main table and you'd have the finals and it was a great evening. But this particular evening didn't quite go according to plan for Mr. Goatley. So I'm going to start reading. I don't think I'll be interjecting much or at all, but we'll see how that goes. Outside of the table tennis part of the story, I do talk about nerves, you know, being nervous and what happens to your body physically, what happens to you mentally, and why it happens, which is a quite an interesting topic in itself. Yeah, and that's about all I want to say, really. So I'm going to start reading, and uh, as I always say, enjoy. 
Ladies and gentlemen, we just wanted to let you know that some of tonight's finals would be umpired by Mr. Peter Goatley, who is being assessed as part of his Level 1 umpiring certification. We would like to wish Mr. Goatley luck. We're at the Maidenhead Close Table Tennis Championship. Okay, I mean tournament. On a Sunday night in February, and it's the final stages encompassing, in this order, the girls and boys singles finals, the mixed women's and men's doubles, and the women's and men's singles finals. The event is being staged at the hotbed of total table tennis, Altwood School, and the atmosphere is electric, as are the lights, despite the suspect wiring. Mr Goatley is a locally known league player and one of those curious oddballs that seem to inhabit the world of table tennis. He tends to say strange things, but as far as anyone knows, he's not prone to handling pressure particularly badly. He is observed to have not eaten or drunk anything for a few hours before the match, and he fidgets slightly as he sits in the chair waiting for the first event. So the girls' singles final starts, contested by Anna Graham and Emma Thomas. As well as having by far the most generically named competitors, this final is also one of the most spectator-friendly, both players having fast attacking styles and with no need to employ the between-points delaying tactics of other players. The warm-up goes well for Mr Goatley, and after the correct amount of time he calls them to start the match. The coin is tossed and called, and away we go. Now one of the rules of table tennis is that the ball must rise six inches during a player's service. Miss Graham has a slightly suspect action in this regard, though not as obvious as some non-competitive ping-pong players who serve almost directly off the hand. She raises the ball, but it's often debatable whether the throw reaches the requisite height. Most umpires in the pre-finals don't pick up on this or take any action, but the esteemed and impressively bearded umpire Robin Lockwood, who is assessing Mr Goatley, is something of a stickler for rules and has been known to call fouls on services in the past. Anyway, Miss Thomas is serving first, so the first five points shouldn't cause any problems. Time enough for Mr Goatley to get in the swing of things. The first point is an exciting one and a taste of things to come. Miss Thomas wins it. One love. Second point to Miss Graham. One all. Miss Thomas's ball toss is higher than most and clearly adheres to the six-inch rule. But Mr Goatley, perhaps with this general issue on his mind, inexplicably calls foul on her third serve. There's a moment of puzzlement and a feeling of slight unease at this inappropriate call which reverberates around the room, rather like that which would happen if someone had suddenly let out a loud burp. The assessor, Mr Lockwood, despite his officious tendencies, decides to give the assessed the benefit of the doubt and the call is not reversed. 1-2. On the fourth point, Miss Thomas tosses the ball higher than normal, no foul is called and a collective sigh of relief is heaved. Miss Thomas wins this point in the next with impressive forehand drives to the backhand of Miss Graham, clearly her weak spot. The service changes to Miss Graham, but unfortunately Mr Goatley calls the score as 4-1 instead of changing the order of the scoring to serve a first, which would make it 1-4. Now, just a quick note, this is in the days when each player would have five serves. So, if it, as I said, if it was 4-1, the service would change and the umpire would call 1-4. Now, they only have two serves, but in those days it was five. Continuing, Mr Lockwood graciously declines to make a correctional call himself but whispers to the by now clearly flustered Mr Goatley the correct score. The umpire calls, er, uh, sorry, 1-4. Was the apology appropriate? I know for a fact that train announcers when doing their training are instructed never to say sorry when they announce stations incorrectly as it seems to show vulnerability and lack of confidence, qualities which shouldn't be displayed by a person in authority to those he is serving. The next point goes to Miss Thomas, 
two four. Oh dear, it should be one five, and this time Mr. Lockwood does intervene. The next two points go to Miss Graham and are scored correctly, three five. Miss Thomas wins the next point against the serve with a quite stunning backhand winner, which draws applause from the sixty or so spectators, who sit rather like an audience in a small theatre, occasionally reacting to moments of interest, but mainly sitting attentively. This theatre metaphor is quite appropriate, as the match, or more specifically the scoring, begins to take on the qualities of a tragicomedy. After the applause for Miss Thomas's fine winning stroke dies down, Mr Goatley calls it 4-5. Mr Lockwood corrects it to 3-6, professionally refraining from any show of exasperation in his voice. If this were a comedic play, it would be written in such a way that Mr Lockwood's voice would gradually show a build-up of annoyance with each bad call, the scene probably ending with an uncharacteristic explosion of emotion, and perhaps even a punch directed at the nose of Mr Goatley. But in reality, Mr Lockwood's experience and professionalism prevents anything of this nature. It's easy to tell from his poker-faced demeanour and his impressive beard with its Father Christmas fuzz that he won't be letting emotion take over. It should also be noted that the Maidenhead Table Tennis Fraternity, in common with many other small-town sporting communities, takes itself rather seriously. In the eyes of many stalwarts of the local leagues, the finals of this tournament are a big deal, the showpiece of the season. The match goes on, and unfortunately, so do the bad calls. At 8-6, Miss Thomas produces a clever serve short to her opponent's forehand and punishes the high return with another sweetly delivered winner, this time on the forehand. The point is called for Miss Graham. Lest these bad calls be considered some kind of conspiracy against Miss Thomas rather than a result of the pressure of the big occasion, Mr Goatley later makes two outrageous judgments against Miss Graham, almost as if to balance things out. Without going through the painful details, suffice it to say that the umpire continues to flounder, but not enough to make his removal from the umpire's chair a serious consideration. He tends to call the shorter points correctly, but becomes nervous if the points go to more than about ten strokes, and seems to forget where he was before the point started. There is a flip chart being used so that the spectators can follow the score visually, but Mr Goatley's attention is squarely focused straight ahead at the match, so he doesn't think to utilise it. The spectators by this point do not know whether to laugh or cry. On the one hand, they feel genuine embarrassment for both the umpire and players and the need to restrain themselves from overly emoting, while they are also gripped by the rather heartless human tendency to laugh at others' misfortune, probably fuelled by too many British sitcoms and the national tradition of the celebration of failure. Gradually, some sniggering and giggling intrudes into proceedings and the atmosphere becomes rather like that of a school classroom where all the pupils have suddenly realised that the teacher has his flies open. At this point I'm reminded of an incident that happened when I worked in a nondescript office in Reading some years ago. And just to note, uh, Reading is in fact where Ricky Gervais is from. And uh, The Office, his fantastic sitcom, was set in Slough, which is quite close to Reading. In fact, on the train it's Reading, Maidenhead, Slough. So very nondescript. One of the newly appointed executives of the company, Mr Roberto Pozzi, came to the office to do a slideshow presentation and meet his people. He was young and very personable, with soft features and a pleasant, non-intimidating smile. He was genuinely liked by all, but also respected and slightly feared due to his position of power. His English was excellent, but in common with non-native speakers who have never lived in an English-speaking country, he made occasional common mistakes and was not in full awareness of the subtle nuances of the language. His presentation was the usual mixture of business cliché and relevant information, but the big finale came when he told us that the final slide outlined his entire philosophy, that of openness and transparency. 
He pushed a button and on the screen came the words, in bold, To succeed as a company and a team, we must expose ourselves. A quiet but palpable gasp came upon those in the room as their minds involuntarily conjured images of long raincoats, boiled sweets and inappropriate behaviour. This was followed by a peal of childish laughter, not callous but obvious. Mr Potsy looked rather bewildered, but perhaps told himself that the underlings were laughing at what a wonderfully fresh approach he had. Returning to the table tennis, the girls' singles final comes to a conclusion with some of the most free-flowing rallies of the match, with Emma Thomas triumphing in two close sets, 21-17, 21-16. Again, in those days, it was 21 to win, now it's 11. So the game has seen some changes since, I think this was 1993 from memory. For the last part of the match, Mr Lockwood is observed slipping a piece of paper and a pencil to Mr Goatley, presumably for the umpire to write the scores down as he calls them. He looks relieved but forlorn at the end of the match, his hands wet with sweat as he shakes those of the competitors. However, a lesson has been learned and the spectators smile with amusement and their own sense of relief that no real damage has been done. It is not clear how many matches Mr Goatley is required to officiate as part of his assessment, but for the next match he is mercifully relegated to the flipboard and Mr Lockwood takes the chair for the boys' singles final. Now, let's look at the phenomenon of nerves. I remember hearing about a drummer from a Welsh rock band who was talking about his experience playing at a summer music festival. His band had previously played to a maximum audience of around 500, but were now given the opportunity to play to over 20,000. They weren't headliners, so no huge focus of attention was on them, and they would enjoy all the benefits of the collective energy of thousands of music fans. The band were all geared up, sounding better than ever, and totally ready to take this wonderful opportunity. The sound check went fine, and backstage they were all geared up, when suddenly, in the drummer's own words, we started to approach the stage and I heard the roar of the audience, and the enormity of the occasion suddenly hit me. I hit adrenaline overload, and suddenly felt tired, very tired. My arms, so vital for a drummer, lost strength. And at that moment, I remember thinking that I just wanted this to be over and I wanted to be at home, resting in a comfortable chair, watching the festival on the telly. The flood of chemicals to my head made my mind fuzzy and I couldn't remember the parts for the first song or any of the others. Thank God our singer and frontman was a calm sort of guy and we changed the order of the song so we could do the slowest and easiest first until my nerves settled. Luckily, I recovered my composure and the gig went off okay. I've never really suffered from nerves since, but that's still a sharp memory, and I suppose a nice reminder in case I ever get too complacent and overconfident. And by the way, that's pretty much my paraphrasing of a quote that I did here many years ago. Also related to the table tennis match you've just been uh, hearing about, I don't remember those points exactly. I've made up, you know, the forehand and the backhand, but obviously the goatly stuff did genuinely happen. Anyone having to make speeches, teach classes or give presentations will recognise this feeling. And tennis fans will probably remember Jana Novotna's famous choke in the 1993 Wimbledon final when she surrendered a 4-1 lead with two breaks of serve in the final set to lose 4-6. Although she didn't fall apart completely and was still hitting some nice strokes, when it came down to the big shots she started hitting the ball directly into the net or sometimes hitting wild shots way past the baseline and sidelines. In 1985, Steve Davis and Dennis Taylor played the most famous world snooker final ever. The 35th and final frame of their match was undoubtedly great television and high drama, but the snooker itself was comically bad, the frame taking over an hour to complete. Both players later admitted that my mind had gone, 
and only instinct and sense memory was telling their bodies what they had to do. As Steve Davis got out of his chair to try to pot what would normally be a routine black ball to win the championship, and this is a direct quote, I realised that my legs didn't seem like my legs, and my arms the same, and it wasn't even my cue. I was playing with a different cue and a different body, and I cracked up and missed the pot, and then sat stunned in my chair as Dennis potted an even easier black. And I've noted, after taking a remarkable amount of time to set himself up to win. Back to the maiden who closed. It's the boys' singles final, and Peter Goatley has a fairly simple task, operating a flip scoreboard while Robin Lockwood does the umpiring. All goes well until the score reaches 13-11 in the first set. The next five or six points go by, but some of the spectators start to notice that the flipboard hasn't changed and still reads 13-11. This continues until someone makes a gesture to Mr Goatley, who appears to be in some kind of trance, perhaps dwelling on his previous troubles. The sniggers of some of the spectators start again, but thankfully Mr Goatley manages to refocus himself on the fairly simple task in hand, and after that match is over, his work for the evening is done. Why exactly did Mr Goatley's misfortune happen? Why did the pressure situations cause our head to flood with chemicals and our pores to open up, allowing sweat to engulf our body and our formerly lucid thoughts to fall into confusion? Basically it comes down to the fight-or-flight mechanism honed in the hunter-gatherer days of perpetual danger from wild animals and other potential threats. When we get nervous or scared, our central nervous system goes into high response. Our heart starts beating faster as well as our breathing and the sweat glands secrete more fluids in order to cool our body. This of course affects performance, but another thing which happens is that the performer of whatever task it is, if he is normally skilled at it, actually has to switch to a different brain system, and often the greater the expertise, the bigger the switch, hence the greater the potential for disaster. If you have practiced a skill for hundreds of hours, it becomes effortless and becomes encoded in your implicit memory, causing what is called expert amnesia. In pressure situations, the performer often seems to forget what normally comes naturally, so he or she suddenly has to switch to their explicit memory and relearn the highly sophisticated skills encoded in the subconscious, using neural pathways last used as a novice. In the most basic terms, we have to suddenly start learning again what we haven't had to for years, including how to construct sentences when we speak. It's quite rare, however, that these implicit skills are totally forgotten, so most top sports people, for example, will still know how to do the basics. However, at the top level, where margins are so fine, it only takes a small performance drop to completely lose a gained advantage. And what about solutions to overcoming this? Well, breathing exercises and focus are definitely helpful, and a theatrical person might well quote a famous joke about the New York concert venue Carnegie Hall. Question, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Answer, practice, 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 my dear. It really is the best way unless you're blessed with a rare natural calm in these situations. You may be wondering what became of Peter Goatley after this evening. Did he give it all up and run away to the circus? Throw himself off beachy head? In fact, the truth was nothing as exciting as that. He took some time off to regroup and then successfully completed his umpiring certification, always remembering that February night in Maidenhead. And there you have it. I hope you enjoy that little bit of uh, humour for life and life only. I think Mr Goatley did get his umpiring certification. What happened after that, I've got no idea, because I left the area quite soon after that. I said earlier, I think that was 1993 from memory, and uh, quite a wild night in the history of uh, Maidenhead table tennis. So um, if you'd like to leave a comment, if you're looking at this on YouTube, obviously there's a comment section, otherwise, lifeandlifeonlypod.gmail.com. 
I particularly like to hear from any table tennis players. Tell me if you enjoyed that. Like I said at the top of the episode, it's uh, very much a minority sport in England. Obviously, if you go to China, it's a different story. China has a remarkable production line of table tennis talent, which is surely going to go on for years and years. But uh, there have been some very notable European players as well. And in fact, a couple of uh, young lads from my local club did make it to, I think, the top 10 players in England. Just to say, you know, um, if you have an interest in table tennis, try and watch it. You know, you can watch it online now. You know, YouTube has got hundreds of hours of table tennis, I think. And um, you might be surprised just how skilled it is. And of course, it's a great game as well to play uh, in clubs. And that's it. So I'll be back soon with another episode of Life of My Family. So thank you very much for listening. All the best. And bye.